HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. The renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada began on August 16th of this year. And since then, I've been wondering what's at stake for food farmers and the land. Joining me today to unpack the effects of NAFTA has on our food system over the past 20 years, um, and the impact that renegotiating the agreement would have is Ben Lilliston. Ben's the Corp- Director of Corporate Strategies and Climate Change at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, which works locally and globally at the intersection of policy and practice to ensure fair and sustainable food, farm, and trade systems. He's been working and writing about international trade issues and how they intersect with U.S. agricultural policy since 2000, since 2000, including multiple World Trade Organization ministerials, the passage of CAFTA, several farm bills, and now the current trade debates. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, okay, so let's start at the very beginning. Um, I personally don't know a whole lot about this particular topic, so um, let's start with the basics. Uh, when was when was this agreement officially enacted, and why? Yeah, so it was officially enacted and came into being in 1994, and um, it's. It's good to think about NAFTA. I think it's useful to think about NAFTA in the context of three big things that happened right at that time uh, in the mid-'90s. NAFTA came into effect in 1994. The U.S. joined the World Trade Organization, which is the international body that sort of sets the the bar for trade 
uh, of over, over 160 different countries. And then the 1996 Farm Bill came right after that. And those three things um, put together really um, shifted, uh, or I should say accelerated, uh, a trend in U.S. agriculture and food towards more of a global system where we enter into a global market. Um, farmers are farming and selling into a global system and agribusiness companies that operate in multiple countries were able to take advantage of those three things um, at the same time. NAFTA was the first free trade agreement of, you know, regional free trade agreement that the U.S. had sort of led with just a few countries. Hmm. Um, And it was the first free trade agreement with a country that had uh, much less economic power than the United States. So, um, Mexico uh, was involved. This is a, a country that was really struggling with poverty. Um, and the hope was that by entering NAFTA, um, we would lift up uh, the economic system in Mexico and they would become a really big market for the United States um, and, and the same for Canada. Um, but that didn't turn out quite that way. And um, there have been a number of problems associated with NAFTA since then that we can go into um, when you want to. So the idea is that they, they would, we would sort of bolster their economies and they would, they would basically import more U.S. products. That was the thinking? Yeah, that they would lift their standard of living. Um, and that, you know, even back then, uh, at that time, immigration was, was an issue. And so the idea is that we'll, we'll spur their economic growth. People will not have to um, come across the border to find work. Um, and there will be more disposable income to purchase U.S. products. Now, um, what actually happened <laughs> was when you have a, a, a country as powerful as the U.S. is, particularly from an economic standpoint, we basically overwhelmed Mexico. Um, after NAFTA. And what, what NAFTA did was, it did several different things, but probably um, the, the core thing it did was lower tariffs. And tariffs are taxes that um, when you trade something across a border, one of the countries may, will charge a tax for you to enter into that country. Mm-hmm. And NAFTA basically gradually eliminated those tariffs um, when it comes to agriculture and food products. And so Mexico no longer had the ability to protect their farmers from really cheap U.S. imports. And so a flood of U.S. uh, exports went into Mexico, many of them uh, really cheap and and in some cases below the cost of production. Um, And in particular, our corn exports really affected Mexico's economy. And by most estimates, they pushed off around 2 million Mexican farmers. Wow. They couldn't, they couldn't survive. And many of those people in the rural countryside in Mexico then ended up migrating to the U.S. So that we actually, instead of slowing immigration, it actually sped it up. Huh. And um, we had, so we had a large increase in uh, Mexicans coming across the border to find work. And and the irony is many of the places that they found work were within the U.S. agricultural system, whether it was working in fruit and vegetable farms or meat processing plants right? Um, Which, or dairy operations. So what, um, what, first of all, what are percentage of our food in the United States, generally speaking, is imported? 
And you, Elaine, in roughly what categories? Well, you know, that's a difficult uh, question to answer, uh, <laughs> part, partly because um, it depends on the different sectors that you're looking at. And in some cases, uh, it's even more complicated than that. So, and, and this is partly the legacy of NAFTA. So prior to NAFTA, the U.S. was a net uh, fruit and vegetable exporter. In, in other words, we exported more than we imported. Mm-hmm. But after NAFTA, many of the fruit and vegetable companies um, saw the opportunities to move down to Mexico and see cheaper labor, but as well as longer growing season. So set up the operation. So now we're a net uh, we import much more, much more than we used to used to in terms of our fruit and vegetable consumption. Mm-hmm. In the case of meat, um, and this is where it gets complicated, um, the U.S. regularly imports a large number of um, cattle, sort of young cattle that have been born in Mexico. They come over to the United States. They get fattened up and processed here. Um, and then often they may get exported back down to Mexico. Huh, uh, but the same thing happens. We also import a lot of really young uh, Canadian cattle as well. Um, and then we also import a lot of really young feeder pigs, so small um, baby pigs from Canada, and then finish them off here. And so it's a it's a really a North American system of food and agriculture that we've set up here um, as a result of NAFTA. Um, over time, you know, NAFTA was not the first, uh, was the first of these kind of free trade agreements, but there have been ensuing ones. And so that system has grown probably a little larger even to Central America now with the Central American Free Trade Agreement, which came into being um, uh, about five or ten years after NAFTA. So it's so it's it's tricky to say kind of what, you know, in the different categories, especially it's, I guess it seems like with the end, you know, in terms how you define uh, imports, I guess, or exports in terms of where the final product ends up. But, um, but like I, you know, I think I read somewhere that 50% of our organic fruit and vegetables, for instance, is imported into this country, you know, overall, not, not just from these two countries that are in the trade Mm -hmm. agreement. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, that sounds right. Um, Of course, you know, we have other free trade agreements with Peru, uh, Chile, um, so some of the South American countries, and, and uh, as I mentioned, some of the Central American countries. Um, so a lot of fruits and vegetables uh, are being uh, imported there, whether they're organic or, or non-organic. Um, and it also depends on different times of the year. You mm-hmm. know, California still does produce a lot of fruit and vegetables um, for much of the year, but not all the year. In Florida um, as well. Um and what 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 is the most common product kind of shifting back to to NAFTA that is imported from Mexico? I think of like tomatoes and berries. Is that you know is that like within the top five we would say, or are there other kind of products that we wouldn't think about normally? Well, tomatoes is definitely a big one, and that and that has been somewhat controversial. A lot of um, U.S. producers, particularly in Florida, um, where they are seasonal, more seasonal producers of tomatoes, have raised a lot of issues on, or under NAFTA that they feel like they're getting undercut by Mexican tomatoes um, and that the government in Mexico is sort of supporting that. And so they've challenged that under NAFTA rules. 
Um, avocados is another big one that people talk a lot about. Um, as uh, you know, there's just been a, a many many of your listeners or some may remember when avocados were not so prevalent mm-hmm. <laughs> in every restaurant and every uh, grocery store, and that's been a big increase. And a lot of that is coming from Mexico. Um, are there? And then what about Canada? I feel like I don't hear very much about um, produce or products kind of coming from Canada. So what are the top imports that we're getting um, from that country? Well, right. Well, you know, as I mentioned, um, even though the cattle um, have have traveled across the borders, we also import beef from cattle uh, from Canada, excuse me, but also a lot of apples. Um, and some of the fruits where they're able to grow on the sort of western part of Canada. Um, those are the big, you know, we're not getting, those are the big imports from Canada. And is there a requirement to label these products as being, you know, what does the labeling scheme look like around imports? Yeah, good question. That's been a big um, source of controversy so for fruits and vegetables, most of those are labeled. Those are um, uh, the U.S. has rules around labeling about what country they're coming from, but they don't have it for uh, beef and pork, and that's part of goes back to uh, what I was describing is the animal sort of moving across borders throughout its uh, lifetime. Um, the U.S. did have mandatory labeling for that called country of origin labeling. And that was struck down. Canada and Mexico challenged that law at the World Trade Organization, and they won. And uh, they have a whole dispute settlement process at the WTO. And they won that legal case, and so the U.S. uh, Congress decided to remove that requirement. So uh, for beef and pork, um, there's no labeling for what country they're coming from. So we can't – we don't know where our meat – limited transparency it's very limited transparency i mean a company may decide to label it if they want to but Mm -hmm. it's not required wow um that is why did they challenge that was the thought that they you know there would increase demand for products if they weren't labeled as being from canada or mexico because it sounds Uh, like yeah yeah. Uh, yeah they believe that if it yeah if it was labeled as coming from mexico that U.S. consumers would be less likely to to buy it. And have we seen? And I don't know. Maybe it's too soon to tell. But when does when does the repeal go into place, or when when do these labeling schemes? I know we're a little bit off topic talking about cool versus NAFTA, but um, <laughs> uh, it, it would, would is it too soon to see an, an, an effect of this? Oh no, it's already in, in, in effect. Yeah, um, for for beef and as I mentioned, beef and pork, it's already in effect. So do we know if it's working for these other countries? Increasing demand, that is. Oh, so can you ask that question again? Oh, yeah. So do we? has there been an opportunity to look at whether or not um, their demand has increased or that that's been like an overall positive effect for Canada and Mexico with the uh, removing of the labeling requirement? Oh, I see. Um I, I have not seen that or heard that. I think it, from their perspective, it was as much about damage control, like trying not to make things worse yeah. <laughs> from their perspective. Um, and, you know, part of that debate was that 
you know, it's how do you label some, an animal that was born in Mexico and processed in the United States? And is that a Mexican cattle or American and, and yeah. you, or U.S.? And um, uh, there was a lot of work being done on that to label where an animal was born, where it was raised, and where it was processed. And the the U.S. rule was you you had to list those three those three things, okay. Um, and that's what the um, was struck down as as still somehow being prejudicial against um, the other countries. One of the one of the f- concepts of the WTO is that uh, at the World Trade Organization, as well as under NAFTA, is that where a product is produced um, shouldn't matter. Um, that that's not a that's not something under the trade rules. That that that's sort of what's viewed as a barrier to trade, and that consumers shouldn't shouldn't worry about that. Hmm. Okay. Um, seems to sort of fly in the face of increased, you know, more demand for um, transparency. That I do think you know there's a lot of com- consumer demand for more transparency in our food system. So. Um, that seems Definitely. very yeah. contradictory, but okay <laughs> to what's kind of what, you know, what's going on right now. Um, what are, what are some kinds of, since there is no labeling requirement right now for the, for the, um, you know, beef and, and pork, like we discussed, what are the food safety, uh, and quality control measures that are currently in place and who, um, you know, regulates this? And this is, this is for, you know, all kind of ag pot products crossing borders through in NAFTA. Uh-huh. So NAFTA, um, one of the things that it did was it basically established a, a food safety chapter, and under that chapter it said that uh, Mexico and Canada and the U.S. had to be operating under similar food safety rules and laws. Um, it wouldn't have to be exactly the same but that the effect would be the same. Um, and so the idea was that um, if you're a company and you're operating in, in e- either of those three countries, you would be operating essentially under the same rules and make it easier for companies to set up shop in multiple countries and not have to worry about different regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that did was really make it easier for uh uh, food companies to to set up shop in different places, and they have, and they've really. This is part of what we've seen is a, this consolidation in U.S. food and agriculture, um, where fewer and fewer con- companies control more and more of the food supply, and NAFTA helped accelerate that trend that was already happening. And food safety is one of the ways they do that. U.S. has, you know, we have the food um, U.S. food and. and um, Drug Administration, the FDA, mm-hmm. which regulates some uh, products, and then and then the USDA also has its own food inspection system, which uh, uh, regulates others, uh, including imports. But the mm-hmm. the idea is that NAFTA is setting up a common set of rules, and then the U.S. sort of use that chapter in ensuing free trade agreements to set up the same kind of system to basically accelerate imports. From other countries, right? That makes sense that it's all streamlined, and the USDA oversees that, even for other, you know, other um, like even for beef. Where isn't that typically? Doesn't that typically fall within FDA's purview? I could be wrong on that. 
Yeah, the um, as I understand that the FDA largely covers uh, fruit and vegetables, and the USDA is more in the animal side of things. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, but so the USDA oversees everything with the trade agreements in terms of food safety. Well, well, not everything. Like I said, the FDA is also oh, involved, okay. particularly in fruit and vegetables, and and um, what they're looking at is. And they also now get involved in other countries, so they may go and inspect um, the facilities of major importers, um, and they then become an approved importer. Okay. Okay. Um, All right. So we are going to take a really quick commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors, but when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the effects um, that NAFTA has had um, and uh, discuss the status of the renegotiation process and what it's going to mean for our food system. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why his products taste so good. So what's the secret, Bob? To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills? How old are we talking here? Well, the stone mills are practically as old as mankind, and no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte, and it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire of which you can testify by looking at at uh, Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it. It's very hard. It has a certain porosity. And they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and, and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing, but very old. I mean, thousands of years old. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone, turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely three, four, up to 500 pounds, depends on how how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible, but it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you. You know it as well as I do. Uh, The grain goes in the top, goes through the stones, and it comes out. We don't lose anything, and we don't add anything. Thanks for sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge. Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Ben Lilliston from the Institute of 
agriculture and trade policy um, when we're talking about the current NAFTA renegotiation process. Okay, so before we went to break, you um, mentioned that consolidation, um, industry consolidation, is one of the big kind of um, you know what is what has like repercussions basically um, from this agreement. So what does this mean? I want to drill down on this a little bit more. What does this mean specifically for farmers, um, for for U.S. farmers, and also for uh, consumers? Yeah, well, it, what NAFTA did, and then also the entry into the WTO, but also um, it's important to understand our Farm Bill, which is our main. Um, farm policy in the U.S. Uh, passed every five years. Um, they all kind of work together to promote this idea of U.S. farmers entering into the, a global sort of food and farm system. So you're competing with other country, other farmers in other countries. Um, prices are set globally, um, and you're dealing with uh, agribusiness companies that are operating in multiple countries. So a lot of these big names, um, whether they're food companies or agribusiness, we sometimes think of them as U.S. companies, but um, they're really global and they're thinking globally and they're trying to figure out where can I source um, whatever's being grown at the cheapest price, where can I have as much as I want that I need, and where can I export it, move it around, or turn it into some other kinds of product, like if you're looking for corn and turning it into high fructose fructose corn syrup or ethanol fuel or um, some kind of bioplastics or animal feed. Um, So this is sort of the trend that NAFTA and the WTO and U.S. Farm Bill have accelerated. So the result has been that there are a lot of – there have always been incentives for farmers to get bigger, um, to to own bigger farms um, because you, there are economies of scale associated with that, but this shift really turned that uh, that trend and really sped it up. Um, so what we have is fewer farmers on the land. I mean, um, NAFTA, um, you could see we lost uh, 22% of our small smaller scale farmers. So those are farmers um, with sort of $350,000 and less yeah. in net sales, um, to give you an idea what smaller farmers are. Right. But we also lost a lot of mid-sized farmers. Mm-hmm. So um, we lost um, somewhere around 6% of those. And a lot of then we see an increase in the number of large-scale farms. So what we have is fewer, bigger farms mm-hmm. <laughs> out there. Um and NAFTA really helped accelerate that process. And I'm assuming these bigger farms are not necessarily producing, growing broccoli. Like, you know, are most of these... <laughs> I have this... Um, I sort of... I think... I don't know if this is... You can correct me if I'm wrong. But it seems like we export a whole lot of commodity crops and import a whole lot of vegetables. Is that fairly accurate? That's right. That's right. And um, and yeah, so the, most of the most of the bigger farms are becoming more commodity crops. Like I said, that crops that can be used for a number of different things. And I'll just throw in real quickly one of the big areas that you've seen fairly significant growth in since NAFTA and this kind of shift is in these large scale animal operations or confined animal operations, um, where we are growing 
particularly in the Midwest where we're based in Minnesota, a lot of corn, a lot of soybeans um, that are used, uh, at least a third of that is used as animal feed for these really uh, huge uh, operations that are raising pork um, and poultry and giant feedlots for cattle. And now we're seeing more and more of these really mega dairies, these huge dairy operations. Are there the same issues with dairy um, in terms of, you know, animal welfare issues um, that in the dairy industry that we see in the, like, you know, beef for consumption? Like, like yeah. are there CAFOs? I always think of CAFOs for, like, you know, beef processing and not, I don't think of them for dairy. But is there, are there similar issues in terms of the treatment of the, of the cows? Yes, there are similar issues, and it's um, it depends on what part of the country you are in, um, <laughs> the way they have the mega dairies and the way they operate. You know, in California, in the San Joaquin Valley there, they have, you know, some of the largest dairies in the country. Um, those are um, open-air sort of giant feedlots. Um, in the upper Midwest, they have um, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and so forth, they have more of the enclosed dairies where they spend a lot of their time inside. Um, there are issues there around. There are animal welfare issues, but the bigger, or I'd say the, the issues that get more attention uh, have to do, are, are more environmentally focused um, issues, issues around um, contamination of water from the giant amounts of waste that are produced in these confined operations, whether it's getting into waterways or contaminating uh, drinking water, which is a, a big issue in parts of Wisconsin. Hmm. So it's mo- mostly In California, this. it's a big issue around air quality um, and the amount of methane and other pollutants that are emitted um, from these giant feedlots. So it's more about, like, um, the number of animals within an in area. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so what about for the consumer? Has this, you know, U.S. consumers, has this agreement really reduced prices? Like, and was that a, a big intention um, for when NAFTA was officially or, or first established? Mm-hmm. Well, I, it's hard to say whether, I, I'm not sure I can answer that question about pri- whether prices have fallen. Um, the, um, you, you do have more fruits and vegetables. I mean, one of the a- aspects of globalization is that it is easier to source fruits and vegetables year-round from other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, what we don't know uh, as much, and we also, um, it's important to understand, too, is that when you bring in fruits and vegetables from other parts of the world, you're also potentially undercutting farmers in your community or your state um, who also want to grow those fruits and vegetables. They're competing against those kind of global um, systems. And even when uh, I think a lot of us think of farmers markets or CSAs or buying locally from a farmer as operating into as a different system, mm-hmm. um, that they're not really competing, that, that but uh, but at the end of the day, they really still feel the weight of those global imports and these giant companies bringing in whether it's you know apples or avocados or tomatoes or 
um, other sorts of fruits and vegetables, bringing them into when you can, you know, most of the supermarkets in the country can source from all over the world and get it, you know, immediately. Mm -hmm. And that's what consumers have kind of gotten used to. Um, but we still don't know, you know, it's a, it's a separation that we felt, I think, from our food and where it's grown and who's growing it. Yeah. Yes. That is definitely a big separation. Um, okay. So, Mm -hmm. so let's talk about like where we are right now. So why this, this is, this agreement's being renegotiated. Why now? Like, has it changed at all over the past 23 years? Or it has not. Yeah, it's a good question. It has not changed. You know, it's it's basically in in place. The reason it's being renegotiated is that um, a lot of people aren't happy with NAFTA and um, feel like it was a bad trade deal. Um, most of that focus has come on um, in relation to workers and the movement of manufacturing plants and so forth. And Donald Trump made it a big issue in in the campaign and said NAFTA was a terrible deal. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to renegotiate it. Um, and he's followed through on that promise. Um, I think his view about NAFTA is pretty narrow and often kind of off base. Um, but no. he is opening up a discussion <laughs> and debate about trade yeah. that we haven't had uh, in this country for a while. Okay. Um, and so that's what's happening right now. He's he's leading this push to renegotiate it. Um, and what he wants to do is balance the trade. He feels like um, his definition of not having a trade agreement work is that um, we should be exporting more than we're importing. And um, so he wants to, to make some changes in NAFTA that allow him to do that. Okay. Um, what does everybody else think about that? <laughs> I mean, well, you know, it's going to be uh, if I think there's several things. Um, I mean, and by the way, kind of going, he's uh, he's approaching it very similar to how he approaches a lot of things, which is basically, you know, kind of recklessly and often just kind of uh, uh, a lot of threats are being levied against uh, the other countries. But also, it's just a very simplistic view of trade. Mm-hmm. Um, from our perspective, um, we should be asking these kind of questions. We should be saying, how can we make sure that people living in all three countries are getting paid fairly? How can we make sure farmers in all three countries are succeeding and thriving? How can we make sure the environment is protected um, within this trade agreement? These are the kind of questions that um, should be the basis of revisiting NAFTA. And we do think you should, we should be revisiting NAFTA. Um, but he's not operating. He doesn't, he's sort of discarded those kinds of concerns and is really looking at um, mostly, you know, manufacturing goods and how do we ensure that we export more than the other countries involved. Um, it's a, it's kind of a skewed and somewhat odd way to, to view a trade agreement. Um in isn't, agriculture, isn't if that... he were so, one of the things that I think people are concerned about is he's he's threatened to walk away from NAFTA and end the agreement altogether. Um, there is some debate about whether he has the authority to do that. Um, I think most people think he probably does, 
Um, but that would be enormously disruptive to our food and agriculture system if you don't have a another kind of idea in place about what you're going to put in place. Yeah. Um, like I said, most of the meat companies are sort of operating in all three countries. Um, we're importing a lot of our fruit and vegetables. Um, if you were to just sort of dis- disrupt those supply chains, um, it could really affect farmers in all three countries. It could really affect workers and people who work in the food system in all three countries. And it could re- it could increase prices for consumers um, in our food system. Right. I mean, so, you, you can't just undo but, 20 to 30 years of globalization, which he seems to think is possible. But I, I guess, like, <laughs> like, I mean, is that, is his sort of rudimentary um, desire, like, is there some kind of... Um, merit to like what he wants to do like is should that be the end goal i mean like is that why we kind of would went and want to enter into a trade negotiation or is that um like totally off like missed completely misses the mark the desire to well i think yeah i think it misses the mark and if you're entering into a trade agreement or any kind of agreement you want it to be a mutually beneficial agreement that we all benefit from uh, you don't. You, you shouldn't. It shouldn't be viewed as some kind of competition where I'm trying to screw you and get the better, <laughs> get the better deal, yeah. um, and you lose and I win. Um, yeah. it, it, because as we see in NAFTA, you know, in, in the case of agriculture, the U.S. has done very well. If you were to just view it from Trump's view, um, we do export more, and we pushed a whole lot of Mexican farmers off the land. In Mexico, with our corn exports, um, Mexico and Canada are buying a lot of U.S. processed food. Um, that could be viewed as a victory, um, but really, in many ways, it's created a system that, uh, at the end of the day, I mean, I would argue for a lot of reasons we haven't won, whether it's the number of farmers on the land, um, whether it's the loss or difficulty and challenges of building local food systems and healthy food systems in all three countries. Um, so, you know, I think the idea that how do we negotiate a trade agreement where everyone, uh, it's beneficial for everyone, um, and it's really looking at workers, farmers, the environment, health, um, as barometers for how we judge it. The main problem with NAFTA and, and all ensuing trade agreements is that they've really looked at these trade deals from the perspective of multinational corporations and how do we, you know, make sure Cargill and Monsanto and uh, Walmart benefit from this trade agreement. And then the benefits will just filter down to the rest of us. It's a very kind of trickle-down mm-hmm. way of, of looking at it. Um, and that hasn't worked. Right. Yeah. I don't know why that still is talked about as like a potential solution so much and even more broadly speaking in terms of like our tax policies in this country, but it's still something that we hear a lot about. Um, So, I mean, I guess, does this, does this issue fall along party lines? Um, Like, like do, does Trump represent Republicans who really would like to potentially walk away from this negotiation? Because it seems to me like there's a, there would be a lot of corporate interest um, and lobbying dollars spent to prevent this. It, it does not fall on party lines. It's a pretty interesting issue. Um, uh, a lot, you're right. A lot of traditional Republican constituencies do not want to end NAFTA. Um, and if you look back um, during the end of the Obama administration, he was pushing for 
something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was basically an extension of NAFTA to include a lot of uh, Asian countries, whether it's uh, Japan, Vietnam, Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia. It was a, a kind of a big mega trade deal mm-hmm. that followed along the lines of NAFTA. So there's there's some uh, it, it crosses both parties. Right. Wasn't Bernie's camp was very much opposed to TPP. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that fa- fa- that failed, <laughs> obviously. So that is uh, maybe a good. Ooh, is that like a kind of canary in the coal mine for what could be coming down the pike for NAFTA? Like, where is the sort of sentiment on this? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of opposition to the TPP, um, and most of that was led by sort of progressive organizations um, and and that are traditionally uh, associated with more Democratic Party kind of views. And so Bernie was giving voice to some of that. but um, I think that that level of opposition to that agreement, even from a Democratic president, was showing that people were very are not happy with this approach to trade. And so it opened the door for Trump to sort of step in and really um, kind of exploit that discontent. Um, and Trump, when he came in, you know, pulled the U.S., ended U.S. involvement in the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and then now has started this renegotiation of NAFTA. And by this approach, do you mean, what What do you mean by that, this approach to trade that we have taken? Um, uh, the, the, uh, the, I think I was referring to the sort of free trade approach, this NAFTA approach, um, where, where you basically are trying to set a trade agreement uh, on behalf of multinational corporations and, and that the benefits okay. will filter down okay. as opposed to starting with you know, how do we make it work right, for, right, right. for people? Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, okay, so is there any, is there any, like, upside if, you know, if we do, if we would kind of end this? Well, first of all, what is the likelihood, you know, if you could kind of, like, look at your crystal ball and, and see, like, what is the likelihood of this, you know, being not being renegotiated and us just sort of pulling out of the agreement? And would there be any winners in that situation, like specifically small family vegetable farmers? Like, would that ultimately be a good thing for them? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, I think the likelihood, it's hard, very difficult to predict. Um, They're in the middle of the negotiations. They've hit a, a really rough spot right now where there seem to be very wide divisions. And people are, are openly talking about the possibility that, that the Trump administration will walk away and they'll end NAFTA. Um, I, I think it's sort of a 50-50 uh, question. And, and, wow. and um, normally trade agreements can take multiple years to finish because they're very complex and you know, you get a lot of lawyers sitting around a table, and it can take a long time. Um, the Trump administration really wanted to get this done quickly, so they've uh, one scenario would be they they reflect on that and decide, okay, we're going to go a little more slowly and take our time to negotiate this, and that would be that would drag this out for a while, and then we could see where it goes. Or they may get frustrated and just say, that's it, we're walking away. Um, like I said, right now, I think people feel like it's a fifty-fifty chance that that could happen. Wow. Um, that seems way more run, than I, I think thought. it wouldn't be it probably would be a good thing if we ended NAFTA and really rethought our trade policy. In the short run, 
it was, as I mentioned, cause a lot of disruption, and many people would, would probably feel some of the pain. What we need to do is not just think about our trade policy, but we have to think about our domestic farm policy together, because our farm bill is really about promoting more and more commodity production, commodity crop production, which feeds into global markets, feeds into um, uh, a lot of animal and meat production, feeds into ethanol, feeds into these other systems. Um, and we don't provide much support relatively to, you know, the small-scale fruit and vegetable farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are sm- there are programs within the Farm Bill that do support them, but it's not really there. They don't have the same kind of risk um, mitigation programs that the other parts of the Farm Bill have. Um, they don't have access to markets. They don't have the infrastructure um, that we need to have in place for those local food systems to thrive, nor the credit systems that they need to thrive. So there's a lot that we could do in a farm bill if we said we want to really rebuild these local food systems and make them stronger um, and reconnect people with farmers and food. Um, but that would require a whole different farm bill, and that's that's where you see these things intertwine, the farm bill, our local food system, our global food system, and trade agreements. That if we're going to take a different approach on trade, then we need to also take a different approach in our farm bill. So all all roads lead to the farm bill. <laughs> it sounds like, <laughs> and now is a good time That's to get to get involved. So what you know with the um, you know with the kind of new version coming out right within this next year. Yeah, they're negotiating right now. They're talking about a, writing parts of a new farm bill right now. Um, so where is a good place? So if you're a consumer who cares about these issues, where would you recommend people first kind of get involved? And then, you know, you know, and then where would that be? I mean, is that lobbying specific elected officials? Um, you know, what can what can people kind of do right now to maybe set effect change? Uh-huh. Well, um, I think the first thing would be to get in touch with your elected representatives. There are a number of groups um, that are putting forth different kinds of proposals around the Farm Bill. So we are also part of um, the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, mm-hmm. um, our organization. And um, they have basically put together a model Farm Bill um, that is along the lines that I was describing that is more focused on local food production as well as healthier food and more environmentally sustainable food. So that would be a good place to start to kind of get some ideas about what you want to talk to your member of of Congress about and basically say we want a different approach on the farm bill and this is what we care about. Um, And then I think the other part is then looking at NAFTA and engaging on trade. Um, Trade is a very difficult for a lot of people feel like it's it's complicated it's something i don't understand i can't really touch it i don't really know how to engage on it um and that's intentionally so i think they want to they want to keep people away from trade rules even though they're really important and affect a lot of uh, parts of our life um so this is another opportunity i think to get in touch with your member of congress and really demand that they get involved in these NAFTA negotiations. Congress um, is taking kind of a step back, and they're letting um, 
President Trump largely negotiate this trade deal. They don't have to do that. They can get much more involved. They can demand to see the negotiating text. They can say, this, these are issues we really care about. And they can play a more, um, you know, deliberate and very uh, involved role in these NAFTA negotiations. Yes, Congress could be doing a lot more, period. (laughs) Full stop. (laughs) But also on this issue. Um, All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there today. Um, Ben, thank you so much for joining me on the show and unpacking uh, some of these really, really interesting um, issues. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right. Okay, and for more information, if you want to read more, go to iatp.org to check out some of the fabulous resources that Ben's organization makes available. Um, uh, yeah, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors, as always, for a generous their generous support. Um, and a thanks to our fabulous show intern, Hannah Weiss, as well as our um, engineer, Feeder Hirsch. Show music is uh, by Tim Archer, and all episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. I'm Jenna Lee Ute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.